Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. It's Tuesday, April 27th. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us today. Very quick note about yesterday. We got enormous response to our show with Andrew Filer, the author of a new book about the Rosenwald Schools, a partnership between Booker T. Washington, the founder of the Tuskegee Institute, and Julius Rosenwald, the, former, the president of Sears Roebuck. They came together, and over a period of couple of, several decades, um, Rosenwald built almost 5,000 schools across the South and border states for African-American students. And uh, if you're still interested in listening to that show, uh, you can hear it on our website, gpb.org PR, or you can subscribe to our podcast and hear it there. But we really are grateful for all of you who responded to that really, really fascinating conversation. Um, all right, uh, we're going to get right to it today because we have a lot of t- to talk about. It's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me. Uh, how are you, Tamar? Good to have you here. Hey, Bill. Can't wait to dive in. Yeah, we've got a lot to, get to do here. And Stephen Fowler, a GPB Radio a political reporter who really, really uh, made a name for himself during the 2020 election cycle and continues to... Uh, cover aspects of the election, crunching data about who voted, who didn't vote, and other aspects of the election. Stephen, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, especially when 2020 never ended. (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, Let's get right to it. Uh, We have the first data from the census, the U.S. Census, who, of course, was delayed by the pandemic and some uh, uh, tomfoolery by the Trump administration uh, that ended up in courts. But uh, we now have the first data. Tamar, we know that Georgia's population between 2010 and 2020, in the official counts, grew by a little bit over 1 million people. Um, We now have, what, a population of some 11 million. But Tamar, we did not gain a congressional seat which is unusual because for the last few census reports, we have been gaining seats. Yeah, ever since the 1980s, Georgia's been steadily gaining representation in Congress. We're now up to 14 seats in the House. Um, that was expanded by by one seat back in uh, 2010, the last time we did this. So yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise that despite Georgia's population growing by some 10%, that still was not enough. And when you look at states like Utah, which was the fastest growing in the country, you know their population grew something by 18%. So it kind of goes to show in, in comparison, despite all of, of Georgia's um, you know massive growth, that, that still wasn't enough to, to gain seats. Stephen, the, the, the largest general trend that the Census Bureau reported is the, the continuing shift of political power from the Midwest and the Northeast to the South and to the West, right? Absolutely. I mean, the South was the fastest growing region in the last decade. It grew by about 10% overall. Now, the census's definition of the South is a little bit generous. It includes Maryland. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, the if you see the, the states that lost a seat in the House and states that gained seats, you see a shift away from the Midwest and from the Northeast to places like North Carolina and Texas 
and other states that uh, have been growing in power and growing in diverse populations over the last several census periods. Um, so, Stephen, um, we know that just if you look at it, break it down in terms of the 2020 presidential election, um, it, Trump won the four fastest growing states. You mentioned Utah, but Idaho, Texas, and North Carolina, they picked up uh, uh, seats. President Biden won four of the next five on the list, Nevada, Colorado, Washington, and Arizona. So in some ways, is it fair to say that this census may be a wash in terms of the partisan divide? A little bit, uh, especially because the Census Bureau actually said this has been the tightest shift in House seats that they've ever seen. You know, there are not that many states that gained or lost. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a wash. It's uh, a bit of a wash when you think about control of the House, which is very, very narrowly controlled by Democrats. And especially when you look at the different states and how they will control the redistricting process, it's not really a big swing one way or the other as to who will take advantage of these seats newly gained or lost. At the same time, you look at the kind of um, the, the larger trends for 2022. It's going to be a midterm year. There's not going to be a presidential election on the ballot. Republicans, because they're in the minority party uh, on Capitol Hill, are already likely to retake the House. And because a lot of these these you know seats will be redistricted, it might be uh, to make up a word there. I don't even know if that's a word. Um, you know, it, it should be able to help them at least a little bit because these Republican state legislatures will be in the driver's seat when it comes to redrawing. It's not going to be a massive shift, or at least that's based on what a lot of folks are, are predicting, but it will still certainly help them in a year in which Republicans were favored to at least retake the House. Um, all right, let's talk about this specifically in terms of what's coming up for Georgia tomorrow. Um, we are going uh, to we'll have redistricting um, sometime in the fall. Typically, by the end of summer, the legislature is able to come together and have a redistricting session. But because everything is delayed, the states aren't going to get the specific breakdowns, the files that will give them the data they need to be able to redistrict congressional uh, lines across the state. Here's what David Ralston said about that on our show on Friday when I asked him, when are you going to have a redistricting session? When the frost is on the pumpkin, probably, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think, I don't think we'll, I don't think you uh, need to make uh, plans to be at the Capitol in August as we have traditionally been. Uh, I, you know, well, I, I say that, but we were, we're, we, we've been delayed by the pandemic in terms of getting the census data. And so I don't know if we can start even during the month of October. Tomorrow, this really kind of freezes things for people who uh, are looking at running for con in congressional uh, races, uh, especially up in the northern metro area where those 6th and 7th district lines, you know, Republicans are hoping they can do something to give them more advantages up there. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, people are kind of widely expecting one of those seats, either the Lucy McBath seat or the Carolyn Bordeaux seat up in Gwinnett, to, to switch a little bit. One will likely become much more competitive, um, if not favoring Republicans. And we're expecting the other one, um, if tradition holds, to become more of a Democratic stronghold. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's certainly, you know, we don't know which seat that one's going to be, who's going to be like running for their lives and who's going to be able to breathe a little bit easier. Um, we're not going to know the racial breakdowns of, of where Georgia's population shifts are for a long time. And so if we don't know where minority voters are, um, you know, that's going to make it awfully hard to make any decisions um, you know, until we, we get to that point. Um, one other thing, one other point I'd like to make before we get too far down in this conversation, redistricting, obviously the implications of that are massive, but as a former budget reporter, I think we need to talk about why the census is so important in all the other respects. You know, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of federal money that gets allocated based on population for things like Medicaid and Head Start and the school lunch program, highway planning and construction. So this, these are mounds of money that will come to Georgia, and that's why it's so important that they get this count right. Thank you. And Stephen, uh, by all means, comment on what's going to happen to redistricting when it comes so late, but also what Tamara is saying is very important. I mean, uh, this, this is why the, this, the governor's office made such a determined effort to count as many heads as possible, uh, not just because, as Tamara says, for political purposes, but for money. And yeah, and looking at the governor's office of planning budget, they do population estimates as well. And they were actually only about 4,000 people off from the official count of the census. So they have a pretty good sense of how Georgia has grown over the last decade. And that probably means that they have a pretty good sense of what kind of funding is going to be coming down. And, you know, speaking of, you know, Speaker Ralston saying that we're not going to know till the frost on the pumpkin. Uh, one of the things is uh, we know how many people Georgia has overall. But what we don't know is what that looks like at the county level or the city level or the precinct level. And that is going to be the building blocks of how these districts are done from state house to U.S. house. And it can be drastically different based on estimates. You know, in the last census in 2010, there were counts done of new construction and condos and things in Atlanta. And the estimates the year before the census had Atlanta being pretty big. But then the recession happened and people never moved there. So Atlanta actually ended up having less population than they anticipated, which meant they lost out on funding. But also it made it a lot harder to draw districts that were accurately there. And so I've talked to people on the reapportionment committee and with the legislative reapportionment office, and they're not, you know, sitting around drawing maps right now until they get that data, because things could look wildly different, especially in, you know, Fulton, DeKalb and Clayton counties, but even Georgia's growing exurbs like Cherokee and Forsyth and Gwinnett that you just don't know if these districts have 10,000 people more than they need to or 1,000. Uh, we should point out, uh, uh, Stephen, that uh, when, uh, uh, when, we've, when we saw all the commercials last year, when we saw the governor's office entreating people to respond to the census, uh, one very vivid example of how important it is, we always talk at election time about how one vote means more than you imagine it does. New York lost a seat in Congress by 70-some people <laughs> uh, because they were just under the threshold of maintaining their districts in, in the House, Stephen. So that's how crucial the census can really be. All right, I'm going to have to pause our conversation now. If you've been listening to GPB Radio this morning, you know we have begun our uh, spring fund drive. Uh, this is one of the most important things we do twice a year is ask you to help us Keep GPB Radio moving forward. Amelia Brock, Sam Burmis-Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, and I 
are always grateful for the support you show us in terms of the notes you write us, the emails, the uh, texts we get from you, the uh, tweets. Um, this is the time to say to you, help us keep things going on Political Rewind and all the other shows we present here at GPB. Um, right now, we're going to give you a chance to do that with two of our favorite people from radio. Something important I should have said before uh, throwing it to our pledge break is there are so many of you who write to me and say you do uh, contribute to GPB, and a lot of the reason is because you like what we do on Political Rewind. And so for you, I'm incredibly grateful, as does our entire team, that you uh, support uh, the, the entire team at Georgia Public Radio, Broadcasting's radio side. Um, one more item about uh, the census before we move on to a couple of other stories in the news with Tamar Hallerman and Stephen Fowler. Stephen, um, we should say that this 2021 reapportionment will be the first time that we've had reapportionment in this state since the Supreme Court of the United States ended Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, meaning the Department of Justice no longer is able to pre-clear district lines that are drawn. And, and that's going to be something we'll all be keeping a close watch on, too, won't it? Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, this is the first big test for how these states that have had decades and decades of history of racist voting laws and actions will fare drawing maps without having to get federal oversight and approval. And it also comes on the heels of a 2019 decision that the Supreme Court basically uh, said that they would not be able to deal with most uh, political gerrymandering cases. So it's there are going to be fewer protections for maps that might not be as fairly drawn as some people would hope. But, you know, Georgia had their maps uh, pre-cleared in the 2010 census. And I think, you know, that's something that David Ralston, Speaker David Ralston, was proud of. And so I think at least in regards to the state house, uh, you won't see a drastically gerrymandered map, partially because of the way Georgia's population has shifted away from South Georgia towards the northern parts of metro Atlanta. And there aren't really a whole lot of places where you can overtly manipulate things that uh, wouldn't be blatant or come back to bite you because of the region's population shift and demographic change. At the same time, it's going to be really interesting to see how Republicans contend with just how quickly things have changed in the in the northern Atlanta burbs, um, especially Gwinnett, which used to be lily white and is now one of the most diverse counties in the country. And, and once we do get that demographic level data um, later this fall, it'll be very interesting to see how those district lines shift. And, you know, if you're a Democrat right now, you really have very limited ways to kind of fight 
these maps that are going to emerge. As Stephen mentioned, there's a Supreme Court decision in 2019 that makes it a lot harder to go to federal court for something like this. You don't have the Justice Department to, to step in as much. There still are portions of the Civil Rights, um, you know, Civil Rights Act that, that are still on the books, but really what you have as Democrats is you have the public arena and you have social media. You can try and get the media on your side and you're going to hear a lot of noise from Democrats regardless. And it, certainly after the voting law that, that was signed into law, it's going to be noisy and it's going to be ugly regardless of um, you know what we might find. Um, I, I do always want to point out, and we'll be talking obviously about reapportionment uh, for, for most of the rest of this year, even before it actually, the session begins to draw the new maps. This is a partisan process that Democrats took full advantage of uh, when they were in power. Roy Barnes uh, and his Democratic uh, uh, leaders created one of the strangest maps ever seen in the state, Tamar, uh, in an attempt to uh, to make sure Democrats kept control at a time when Republicans were coming into an ascendancy here, creating multi-member districts and other things that uh, many people found very, very suspicious. So this is not by any means just a Republican effort. Both sides do it tomorrow. Absolutely. And it's something you hear from Republicans all the time. If you ask them, hey, would you ever go to kind of an independent commission to help draw these lines? And they say, well, when Democrats were in power, they, they never would have considered such a thing either. All right, let's talk, let's talk about some other news that uh, popped up all of a sudden yesterday. Stephen, I don't know if you were surprised by this. I was. Um, one of the people who's not going to have to watch reapportionment as closely as, as some others do is Doug Collins. It had been widely expected that he would either launch a, a bid for Raphael Warnock's Senate seat, which is up next year, or perhaps with um, Donald Trump's support, go after... Uh, Governor Kemp in a GOP primary. Instead, yesterday, Collins said, nope, I'm sitting on the sidelines in 2022. He's got a new conservative radio show. He's got uh, he's joined a law firm. Uh, were you as surprised by that as I was, or had you seen this coming? I'm not necessarily as surprised about Doug Collins' decision. You know, he said, this isn't goodbye forever. It's just goodbye for now. But really, over the last month or so, the landscape of Georgia's Republican primary has shifted drastically from what you would have expected after November and in the immediate aftermath of the January Senate runoff. You know, Doug Collins, you know, really, he applied for the Senate seat when Governor Kemp put out the application. Kemp picked Leffler. He ran anyways and burned some bridges with the NRSC and other groups by running and kind of splitting the Republican vote. He finished third behind Leffler. And I think uh, it kind of seems that for now, he had no more gas left in the tank to really want to uh, re-engage in that arena. But what it has shown is that, uh, you know, we were expecting there was going to be some big challenges to Governor Kemp. And now all we have is Vernon Jones, a lifelong Democrat turned Trump supporter. Uh, we expected there was going to be a big crowded field getting into the U.S. Senate primary. And right now we have a couple of uh, relative unknown military veterans and the biggest name potentially being Texas-based Herschel Walker. And so the landscape of Republican primary politics for the next year is drastically different than what we expected. And in many ways, it seems a lot more tamer than the kind of uh, knockdown drag out that we were promised after Trump's loss. 
It's also worth considering that Brian Kemp, and certainly he is still vulnerable, he still is on the bad side of former President Trump, he was aided greatly by his support of the elections bill of SB202. Um, that fight over it with the Democrats has been such a gift to him in, in terms of being able to rebuild bridges with those Trump supporters who were so upset that he wouldn't invalidate the results of the November election. So certainly still wounded, you know, still is going to have to watch his back, but it becomes a lot harder um, for somebody like a Doug Collins after something like that. It's also worth saying, you know, as Stephen mentioned, you know, Congressman Collins has his new radio show. He's working at a law firm. It's a way to be able to make some money. I know he has some kids, um, you know, kind of around the, the college age. So I'm sure that helps as well. And, you know, being um, you know, running a, a statewide race is certainly time consuming. You're you're on the road a lot. And, and maybe maybe it's nice staying home. Maybe I'm just putting words in his mouth. But uh, <laughs> certainly after years of, of doing that, I can see the um, the appeal of, of staying home for a little bit and making some money. Yeah, no, actually, I think you make a good point. I, I recall when Sam Nunn finally decided to retire from the United States Senate, um, I, you know, here is one of the most celebrated uh, senators in, uh, in, in Southern uh, recent history. And when he retired, uh, people thought it was a great loss for Georgia that he wouldn't be there anymore. But in a conversation with him one day, he said something very similar to what you're talking about, Tamar. He said, I have devoted myself to public service my entire uh, life, and now um, I want to move on to other things, uh, the, you know, the effort to reduce nuclear stockpiles being a very important part of what he was doing. But he said exactly what you're saying. He said, it's time for me to make a living for my family. Uh, and, and so he became a partner in uh, King & Spaulding, one of the largest law firms in the, in the Southeast and for that matter in the country. So I'm not sure you're so far off on that. Um, uh, but, uh, Stephen, uh, so Trump's uh, imprint on the 2022 and the tw uh, races is not going to disappear just because Doug Collins isn't in it. If Herschel Walker gets in, it's largely because of Donald Trump. And other candidates are certainly uh, Trumpy in the way they perceive <laughs> politics today. Absolutely. I mean, look no further to the Secretary of State's race. You know, Jody Heiss is giving up a very safe House district to challenge the Secretary of State, who has just been weakened by this massive elections law. So he's doing it and running uh, this kind of very Trumpy, very false claim of election fraud campaign for Secretary of State, which is a job that nobody really wants to do. And then you've also got all of these contenders that are falling over themselves to run for lieutenant governor in the primary. Now that looks like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan isn't going to be running for re-election, you know, from several sitting senators to Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer. And so the it's kind of the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of where Republicans are putting their energy towards these races are a bit different than what you expected in November. But you're right, they are still no less Trumpy in their goals and aims and who they need to motivate to get to the polls. So, um, Tamar, Stephen suggested correctly that we haven't seen the kind of uh, uh, real rush to get into either the Senate or the governor's race yet by Republicans. But some of that could be because Doug Collins was sort of freezing uh, people because he was considered a leading contender. Um, so we'll see now if this opens any floodgates at all in either of those races. 
I think especially for the Senate race, everyone's waiting for Herschel Walker's decision. Mm -hmm. He's obviously right. the Trump favorite, right. at least at this point. And you're seeing people like Buddy Carter, the congressman from the Savannah area, saying, if Herschel doesn't run, I'll, I'll, I'll run. And I, I believe there's going to be plenty of people where if Herschel doesn't, they'll, they'll, you know, it'll quickly become a crowded contest on the Republican side. Okay, we've got to pause for, an, a, again, another uh, opportunity for those of you who have not been able to make a contribution to GPB Radio to do so now. Again, our thanks to those of you who have, uh, but we really need all the help we can get from you uh, to keep our machine <laughs> moving forward, not just on Political Rewind, but Stephen Fowler's political reporting, uh, Morning Edition, all things considered, the shows that you listen to every single day. Here's how you can do that. <laughs> We're joined today by GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler, who, by the way, I, I said a little while ago in talking about him, had a real breakthrough year and more than a year going into 2021 in the election, covering first the uh, 2020 election cycle, the runoffs, and then the legislature. In fact, Stephen's breakdown of the uh, election law passed by Georgia, Senate Bill 202, uh, became a ubiquitous presence. I mean, he broke it down in very objective detail. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution actually picked it up and ran it in its entirety. So we're very glad to have you on our first pledge show of this pledge season. And Tamar Hallerman, who's with us every Tuesday, brings her insights uh, from years of covering Washington politics, now here in Atlanta as senior reporter for the AJC. So I'm very glad you're both here with us. Today. Uh, Tamar, there, there's a show, I don't know if it's on television anymore, I think Hulu carries it now, uh, called Dirty Jobs. Mike Rowe made a name for himself as a guy who would go into these horrendous situations and, and, and deal with the jobs that really so few people really wanted to have. I bring that up because I think right now one of those difficult, difficult jobs would be to be Bill Stevens, who runs Stone Mountain Park. They are making the best effort they can to figure out how to take the sting out of this enormous, sprawling monument to the Confederacy to repurpose it and bring it forward. But nobody, Bill Stevens himself admits, is going to be happy in the process tomorrow. Exactly. You have groups like the Sons of Confederate Veterans that don't want a thing changed about the park you have state laws passed by the legislature, especially in recent years, um, that say you, you really can't do a lot in terms of moving or changing Confederate monuments. At the same time, you have building pushback from Democrats, civil rights advocates, um, plenty of other people, especially in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement, who are saying, how can Georgia be running the, the world's biggest monument to the Confederacy. How are we spending, you know, state dollars on this and who want it changed or at the very least, you know, stop maintaining the, the carving on the side of the, the mountain. So certainly um, there's very little common ground to be had. And certainly it's a very thankless job for, for the people running uh, the, the Stone Mountain Memorial Association. Uh, Stephen, uh, Governor Kemp, though, uh, uh, made a, a, a step in a direction that many people would say is the right direction. He uh, elected a leader of the Stone Mountain Board that he elected, he appointed, the first African-American, Reverend Abraham Mosley, who is a community advocate, a pastor in Athens, the first chairman of the authority in more than six decades. So that was an important movement at the move, at least symbolically, Stephen. 
Right. I mean, Georgia still has laws on the books that protects Confederate monuments. So it's not like somebody can take a giant sandblaster to the front of the mountain and polish it up and say, we're all good. And so, uh, you know, Kemp, I think like we will quickly see with most other things that he's done throughout his four years is kind of walking this tightrope of, you know, the monument and the mountain represents one thing to potentially half of the state and a different thing to the other half. And this is a way to inch things along towards a better resolution, because as people have pointed out, you know, nobody wants to go see a giant Confederate monument as a tourism draw, even though there are other things that are not, you know, blatantly Confederate oriented, that it's a big tourism hit that, you know, people don't want to go to a giant monument. And so, you know, there was a meeting the other day uh, that there was going to have an ideas about what do they do. And one of the proposals includes creating an exhibit that tells the truth about the world's largest Confederate monument and, maybe confining the Confederate imagery and things to just one part of the park. So you're not getting rid of it. You're not saying, oh, that didn't happen. But it's putting this sort of context around it that acknowledges what a Confederate monument means in the 21st century. Also, I mean, this is a business decision also for the state. There are giant corporations that are starting to pull out of the surrounding area because they're very uncomfortable with what Stone Mountain Park represents. Um, you have Marriott, which runs the, the park's primary hotel and conference center, which plans to pull out next year. Um, you have the Silver Dollar City, um, which operates the park's money-making attractions, um, and it notified the Memorial Association last summer that it planned to end their relationship um, with Stone Mountain in 2022 because of the, the protests and divisions surrounding the, the site. So the state is in an increasingly awkward position where, you know, the legislature has sort of tied its hands, um, while at the same time, a larger swath of the public is beginning to oppose stuff like this. So it's tough. Um, when it comes to other uh, Confederate imagery and statues and memorials around the state. We've started seeing, at least in Metro Atlanta, judges take more creative uh, steps in order to get around that. You saw um, in Decatur, for example, ruling that the monument was a, um, a threat to public safety or something along, a public nuisance, that's what I mean, um, to be able to, to remove it. Uh, it's a lot harder when we're talking about a, a mountain uh, than something carved in granite, but uh, it's becoming harder for the state here. Yeah, I, so, you know, Tamar, we recall in t when, when Stacey Abrams was launching her gubernatorial bid um, back bef well before the 2018 election, um, at, at a certain point in the campaign, there was conversation. Uh, I don't know if she herself said it, maybe Stephen does, that uh, she thought they should sandblast the images of the Confederate leaders off the mountain. Th that was an impractical suggestion, and it didn't really get uh, gain any momentum. But you just made an important point, Tamar. That, that carving is a ubiquitous presence on the landscape of that entire area of Northeast Metro Atlanta. Exactly. And so you see proposals, you know, short of sandblasting it, maybe to let the trees around it grow out. You're not going to maintain the, the site as much. So it kind of covers it up a little bit more. You've also heard proposals in line of, of what Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, putting a, a chapel on top of on top of Stone Mountain. And that's the, those are proposals you still hear about to this day. Um, so there's not going to be an easy or a cheap solution here. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what, what the folks at the Stone Mountain Memorial Association really can do, especially if they have one hand sort of tied behind their backs. But you know, Stephen? 
But, you know, th- this is also, I mean, it's an also an uncomfortable part of Georgia's history. I mean, the mountain itself, you know, it opened, you know, in 1965 officially, but it was used sort of unofficially uh, for, you know, KKK-affiliated things. And the laser show, which has been, you know, a part of summer traditions for families in Georgia for, you know, more than 30 years, ends with the lasers coming together on these generals that are on horseback on the mountain. And like, it's part of Georgia's history. And I think part of the difficulty of that is separating uh, the imagery, the Confederate imagery and what it means with this tradition and this, you know, giant rock on the side of the mountain that has been a part of so many Georgians history and having people reckon with that uncomfortable past. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how they move forward and uh, both the authority board and, again, Bill Stevens have a very tough job uh, uh, carved out for them, <laughs> not to make a pun about the carving on the mountain, uh, but in the months ahead. Stephen, uh, before we run out of time, um, you tie together a couple of, of uh, threads of our conversation already today. You did some new uh, data crunching uh, about the uh, who voted and who didn't in the 2020 election cycle. And, and one of the reasons it's worth at least a couple minutes here is that it, it, it points out that Republicans can do everything they want to to change election law, they can redistrict, but to some extent, Republican voters are not showing up at the polls in the numbers they need to, is I think the conclusion that some of your numbers crunching reach, yes? Yeah, so the November presidential election and the January runoffs had some of the highest turnout that George has ever seen. The difference between the two and why we have two Democratic U.S. senators is who didn't show up the second time. And the biggest drop-off in voters is white Republicans in rural areas of the state, specifically Northwest and Northeast Georgia, that's Marjorie Taylor Greene's district and Andrew Clyde's district, that those are people that voted in November but did not come back on January. Now, you know, obviously you see a drop-off in runoffs regardless because it's a second election, people are tired of politics for whatever reason, and so I think it was about 700,000 or so people that did not vote, coupled with about 200-something thousand that voted in January that didn't in November. But on balance, what you see is the proportions of voters, the the same proportion of white voters and black voters were roughly the same, but who those white voters are changed. In the January runoff, there were more white voters in the suburbs that voted Democratic than white rural Republican voters. And so that, to me, sets the stage for conversations about 2022. And to get Republican-based voters back into the fold, Brian Kemp and whoever the lieutenant governor nominee is and whoever the Senate nominee is are going to have to get those people back into the fold just to be competitive with Democrats in November of 2022, let alone try to figure out the message that pulls back some of the suburbanites to have a broad enough coalition to win. Tamara, I thought it was kind of breathtaking in a way when we all saw Kelly Leffler's statement about why she was creating a new conservative outreach group to encourage uh, uh, conservative voters to uh, go back to the polls because she bemoaned the fact that Republican voters, as Stephen points out, stayed away from the runoff election. And of course, the irony of that is that she was one of the people who perpetuated the Donald Trump myth about the the so-called rigged election, which many people think 
uh, was partly the reason why Republicans didn't vote in the runoff. Yeah, I can't help but remember the election eve rally that uh, then-President Trump held, I believe it was Dalton, um, where, you know, Kelly Leffler was was standing on stage and, and Trump was there, but the crowd was chanting, stop the steal. Um, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler were almost afterthoughts uh, for a lot of those voters. And, and it was all about, um, you know, disgruntled kind of talking about what happened to Donald Trump in November. So um, you look at this map now and <laughs> I have it pulled up on my screen and it's almost exactly, you know, this 14th con congressional district, the areas around Dalton that saw uh, the biggest uh, drop off between the, the general and the, and the runoff. And it, it shows where the work you know, needs to, to be done to kind of rebuild that um, enthusiasm among Republican voters. And, you know, I will Which say... Which is one of the... Re Go ahead, Stephen. Well, I will say two things on that. One, uh, I think SB202, the election law, has been beneficial for both parties. I mean, Democrats are rallying against it. They're calling it Jim Crow 2.0. They're pointing back to this history of things, but also Republicans. Uh, a new poll that the UGA put out found, I think it was more than 82% of Republicans say they have more confidence in the state's election system because of this law. And that's kind of a precursor to showing up and voting if you believe your vote's going to count. But the other thing that's kind of the flip side, the, the less flashy headline of this is that after coming within 55,000 votes of winning in 2018, Stacey Abrams and the Democrats have finally had the money and the manpower and the message to really lock in to getting black turnout to the levels that it needs to be. And, you know, that's something that's not going to go away in 2022. So that's going to be a strong start for them. Stephen Fowler, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much for being with us. Tamar, I love having you with us on Tuesdays. Thank you for uh, joining us for our uh, show today. Um, that's it for us. We're uh, leaving you a little bit early today because we want to give people an opportunity uh, to uh, listen to how you can become a, a partner in our work here at Georgia Public Broadcasting if you haven't done that already. So uh, we will throw it back to our pledge team. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow with another show. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, and even though you've gotten your vaccination, encourage people around you who haven't that it's time they get theirs. See you all tomorrow. Here's more about Pledge. <laughs>